The views, opinions, and findings contained in this podcast are those of the host and subject matter experts. They should not be construed as official Department of Defense positions, policies, or decisions unless designated by other official documentation. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today, or CUBIST, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. The TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE, produces this program. I'm your host today, Don Marion. I'll be speaking with Amanda Gonneau. Ms. Gonneau is a physician assistant and TBI subject matter expert at TBI-COE. Amanda and I will discuss a study entitled Relation of Mild Traumatic Brain Injury History to Abnormalities on a Preliminary Neuroendocrine Screen, a Multicenter Limbic Sensi Analysis by Bill Walker and colleagues and published in Brain Injury in May of 2022. Hi, Amanda, and thanks for bringing this article to our attention today. Could you tell us a little bit about this study? Hi, Don. Sure. So, you know, I think it's important for primary care managers and other medical providers listening to have an an awareness of some of the research that exists. And and we cover a lot of those articles in these podcasts. But sometimes it's even more important to be aware of the research that doesn't exist yet or things that still need to be studied. So that is sort of the case and something to consider when we think about neuroendocrine dysfunction following mild TBI or concussion in particular. So before I really get into the article today, I wanted to just give our listeners a little bit of a background on neuroendocrine dysfunction and a little bit about what we know and what we don't know as it relates to concussion or mild TBI in particular. So neuroendocrine dysfunction can occur in a subset of patients that have experienced TBI, and it is best recognized in the acute phase after moderate and severe TBIs. And this is typically caused by an injury to the anterior pituitary gland. And this gland is responsible for the production of hormones, including growth hormone, adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH, prolactin, thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, and luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, or LH or FSH. The prevalence of neuroendocrine dysfunction after TBI, and specifically after mild TBI, is pretty difficult to estimate, mainly due to a really wide variability of study methodologies that are used to evaluate prevalence data. So best estimates from some of the meta-analyses out there postulate that between 27 and 32% and even in some studies as high as 50% of TBI patients will experience some type of pituitary dysfunction. But this prevalence data includes mixed severities. So this includes patients that have had mild, moderate, and severe TBIs. Prevalence of neuroendocrine dysfunction after concussion or mild TBI alone is just not known. It's not well defined by the literature. Some studies have correlated a history of multiple mild TBIs and subconcussive events with a higher risk of neuroendocrine dysfunction. And there's also been a link in some smaller studies between blast exposure and neuroendocrine dysfunction as well. So as you know, Don, these risk factors are really quite common in the military service member community. So recently, this has been an area of interest in the military research realm. So more of an emphasis has been placed on studies that really look at neuroendocrine dysfunction in the mild TBI population. Thanks for that explanation, Amanda. That all makes sense to me. So what are the most common neuroendocrine disorders that occur after TBI? 
Good question, Don. So the most common pituitary disorders that occur after TBI are growth hormone deficiency, adrenal insufficiency as a result of disrupted adrenocorticotropic hormone secretion, hypogonadism, hypothyroidism, hyperprolactinemia, and diabetes insipidus. And again, Don, that list of disorders and that data is all from studies of mixed TBI severities, not just mild TBI. So I get the sense from what you've been saying, Amanda, is that Patients with severe TBI may be significantly more likely to have endocrine dysfunction than patients with concussion. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's well recognized in a moderate and severe TBI patient and something that providers are pretty, I think, used to screening for. But there's less known about the mild TBI concussion patient and how a neuroendocrine dysfunction may present itself in the chronic phases after injury. So let's get back to this study. Tell me a little bit more about this study. Yeah, sure. So one of the, I think the biggest research questions or the biggest clinical questions the mild TBI community is asking is, should we be screening for this? And if so, when and what should we be ordering? And it's actually kind of a more difficult question than you would think because screening can be complicated. There's not just one simple, easy screening test for neuroendocrine dysfunction. So this screening usually involves first you order some basic labs and then you typically need to order more dynamic provocative testing that can be logistically challenging. Also, labs need to be drawn at a specific time of day, and there is a lot of variability in how some of these lab values are interpreted. So there's a lot to think about here. Keeping that in mind, this particular study was a cross-sectional study that analyzed data from the Limbic Sensi Multicenter Prospective Longitudinal Study. This study, as you know, Don, we've covered some Limbic Sensi studies before. This study enrolls current and former United States service members with combat exposure and a range of a number of mild TBIs in their lifetime, including those with an entirely negative TBI history. So the eligibility criteria for the Limbic Sensi study is you have to be an adult 18 or older of any sex, race, or ethnicity. You have to have a history of a post-9-11 deployment and combat exposure and an absence of history of a moderate to severe TBI and no schizophrenia or other major neurologic disorder. So each one of these participants had an extensive TBI screening using the Ohio State University TBI identification screening test. And then patients were then categorized by number of mild TBIs and injury types, so blast versus blunt. Then at their baseline visit, participants, they gave a blood sample. And this is the blood sample that was used to take a look at some of these neuroendocrine screening labs in the study. These labs are not timed or fasted, and so as I sort of alluded to earlier, that can make a really big difference when we're talking about neuroendocrine screening. So the lab values that they used in this study were insulin-like growth factor 1 or IGF-1, TSH, and total testosterone. The investigators cited choosing those labs as they had been previously cited as an initial workup of neuroendocrine dysfunction in TBI survivors, and the investigators utilized the reference ranges that were accepted by the lab facility that they used to determine abnormal results. So I just want to reemphasize, you know, you mentioned provocative testing and so forth, that these blood tests were not done according to the way an endocrinologist would do them, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So did they also look at symptom severity? 
They did. They used the PHQ-9 depression rating scale, the TBI quality of life, fatigue, executive function, and cognitive short forms to determine self-report symptoms. They also used the trail-making test, Part B, TMTB, which is a performance task of mental flexibility and executive functioning demonstrated to be very sensitive in detecting cognitive deficits. And they measured processing speed using the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale 4th Edition, which looked at time tasks of symbol search and coding. And I guess these are fairly commonly used tests, so that's good. So what do they find? So there were 1,520 participants that were included for analysis. 227 of those participants were negative for any lifetime TBIs or used as controls. 716 participants had one to two mild TBIs, and 529 of the participants had three or more TBIs and were categorized in a group called repetitive. Among those with positive mild TBI history, the differences between the repetitive and the one to two mild TBI groups were pretty much as expected with regard to TBI history, the repetitive mild TBI group having a longer time since their first mild TBI and less time since their last mild TBI. And that group had a greater proportion of BLAST-related TBI mechanism. Overall, the mean time since last mild TBI was 10.9 years. So these are patients who had their TBI fairly long time ago. When the investigators analyzed the results from the blood samples, they found that 1% of the mild TBI participants screened positive for growth hormone deficiency, 6% for hypothyroidism, and 13% for hypogonadism. Those were the three neuroendocrine disorders that this study looked at. When they compared the no mild TBI group to the one to two mild TBI and the repetitive groups, they found that there was no significant difference in lab value abnormalities between the mild TBI group and the control group. That's pretty interesting, Amanda. So no difference with mild TBI in a large number of patients. What were the limitations of the study? Well, there are a lot of things to consider, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier. So first and foremost, those lab values were not timed. And I think this is important to touch on and to just talk about from a clinical perspective. If labs are not collected in the correct way and interpreted with the same cutoff, there's going to be some major issues when considering referral and treatment of these patients. So um, for example, Don, you know, to properly diagnose male hypogonadism, first patients would have a total testosterone drawn at 8 a.m. And then if that's low, it should be repeated two additional times with the addition of LH and FSH labs. And there are also differences in lab values, reference ranges, depending on patient age and things like that. That's just one example with testosterone. Additionally, there is some conflicting data on whether IGF-1 is a useful screening tool to initially screen for growth hormone deficiency. So to properly diagnose growth hormone deficiency, patients need dynamic testing with a provocative test, either a glucagon stimulation test or an insulin tolerance test to receive a really accurate diagnosis. And both of those tests are not as widely available and they're more expensive. Another limitation was the cross-sectional nature of the study design with the labs just taken at random at study enrollment. Finally, you know, this was a study of service members who are quite a few years out from their last TBI. The mean time from last TBI was 10.9 years with a minimum of 5.3 years. So it's really unclear if their findings apply to service members during the first year after their TBI. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of it. What were the key takeaways 
Well, I think the key takeaways from reviewing this article are that screening and treatment of neuroendocrine dysfunction after mild TBI is complicated, and it may not be the most appropriate thing for a primary care provider to do. I think that the key finding of this study is that in a very large group of service members with a remote history of mild TBI, the incidence of three of the more common types of neuroendocrine dysfunction was no different than the incidence in a control group of service members without TBI. So as a result, routine testing, which is logistically challenging, just may not be worthwhile. TBI COE's neuroendocrine provider fact sheet outlines some common symptoms of neuroendocrine dysfunction after mild TBI and highlights risk factors and indications for referral to TBI clinic or a specialist like an endocrinologist who would then do the full screening and workup. At this time, we're not recommending that primary care managers perform the screening labs on these patients, but instead refer the patient if they have a clinical suspicion of a neuroendocrine disorder and allow the specialist to order the appropriate lab testing to prevent prolonging care and having the patient go through retesting due to differences in lab values or you know improper timing, things like that. That's great advice, Amanda, but just very quickly, what does the patient look like when you were a primary care provider? What would have even led you to think of neuroendocrine dysfunction in a patient you were examining? Yeah, so that's a good question. Symptoms of neuroendocrine dysfunction can be pretty vague and they can overlap with a lot of other conditions that can occur after a concussion or a mild TBI. So patients may be complaining of fatigue or low mood, difficulty concentrating, sexual dysfunction, things like that. But these things can also occur with other comorbid conditions like psychological health conditions or sleep disturbances. So it's important to look at the patient, you know, look at the full picture and make a clinical judgment on whether to refer that patient for a neuroendocrine screening. And I would just emphasize that a lot of those things you talked about, fatigue and, you know, those kind of disturbances are very common post-concussive symptoms, uh, maybe due to a loss of sleep. At any rate, thanks a lot, Amanda. And that was a very complicated issue. That turns out to be all we have time for today. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinny White and was hosted today by me, Don Marion. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Portfolio Management Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, which is led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode.